Uh, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be able to share the Word of God, and I thank God for this opportunity to be able uh, to share the Word of God with you uh, this morning. We are starting a new series. We just finished the series on the Holy Spirit, so we're starting a series on one another. In the New Testament, because we are a community of God, there are commandments, there are encouragements on how we need to live as a community of God. And so this morning, we are going to look at Jesus' command that we need to love one another. So open your Bibles, if you have not, uh, to John 13, 31 to 35, where Sean read for us. I don't know whether you've ever bought a piece of furniture and they give you the instructions on how to put it together and you bring it home and maybe one or two pieces is missing and you get very much frustrated. That has happened to me, it is as such furniture in our basement. When Jesus Christ commands us to love one another, it doesn't start by telling us that all that you need to do. But he gives us the instructions. He gives us the instructions on, on what we need to anchor our love on. So in John 13, 31, what's happening is that Judas has gone out, he's going to betray Jesus Christ. This is the Thursday on the Passion Week Christ Jesus will be betrayed, and now he's seated there with all his disciples, and he starts to speak. He starts to give a speech from John 13, 31, all the way to the end of chapter 17. And what he commands the disciples in those chapters, he also prays for them. And he prays not only for the disciples, but also for those who would come after the disciples, which is you and me who has been saved and brought into union with Christ Jesus. And so before he tells them, I want you to love one another, he tells them, let me read verses 31. Now it's the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then after that, he says, little children. He addresses them, little children, before he gives them the command to love one another. And so there are two important things that Jesus Christ wants the disciples to know, and that Jesus Christ wants us to know this morning before our love for one another can be able to flow. We are going to look this summer at different one another's on how to bear with one another, on how to forgive one another, on how to offer hospitality to one another, and all those things, the one another's of the New Testament, they flow out of the love that we have not only for God, but also for one another. So Jesus Christ wants us to know two things before he gives the commandment. Number one is the glorification of Christ Jesus. The second one is the gift of Christ Jesus and then the command that Jesus Christ gives unto us. So Judas is out of the picture and Jesus Christ says because Judas is out of the picture right now, 
Once he has gone, Jesus Christ says, the Son of Man is glorified. The Son of Man is used in the New Testament to give the picture of the suffering servant of God. And so when Jesus Christ says the Son of Man is glorified, Jesus Christ has in mind not only his crucifixion on the cross, but also his resurrection and his exaltation on the, and sitting on the right hand of God the Father. When we talk about the economy of salvation, when God gives the promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis after they have eaten of the fruit, when he gives them the promise that one will come who will be better than the first Adam, the second Adam will come and save people from their sin. Jesus Christ is now pointing us to that when he says that the Son of Man is glorified. So when we see Jesus Christ on the cross, as he hangs there on the cross, the Son of Man is being glorified. The Son of Man is being given honor. And we need to ask ourselves, a very important question, with Jesus Christ on the cross, and Jesus Christ saying that he dying on the cross is he being glorified, what does that mean? And how should that influence not only our lives, but how we love one another? The glorification of Jesus Christ on the cross, or the honor of Jesus Christ on the cross, is that as Jesus Christ is on the cross, is not only fulfilling the promises that God gave to Adam and Eve, but is also fulfilling the promises that the children of Israel were not able to observe and fully obey God. Because a righteous God demands a fully righteous obedience. A righteous God demands a holy gift. And so in the Old Testament, God institutes sacrifices to the children of Israel. Why does he do that? Why do they have the day of Yom Kippur? Why does he institute even the priesthood? Because he wants the children of Israel to know that they will be saved because of the righteousness of another. As the priest, during that one day, as he put the sins of the people, symbolically, on the lamp without blemish and send it away, the children of Israel knew that we can't fully obey God. We can't fully stand in a right standing before God. Our hope of salvation, our hope of being in union with God inches on the obedience of another. And so we have all these sacrifices in the Old Testament that are pointing the children of Israel. They want to look unto God and God is telling them, you shall be saved because of the obedience of another. So when Christ is on the cross, when the wrath of God is poured on him, that's the glorification of Christ Jesus. Christ is being glorified as the righteous Israel Christ is being glorified as the true Adam. And look at what Christ says. He says, the man, the son of man is glorified 
And then he continues and says, and God is glorified in him. So what does that mean? When Moses says, oh God, show me your face. And God says, no, you can't. No man can see my face and live. And then God passes by. And what does, what does that happen? God tells Moses, this is my glory. And then he gives Moses the character of God. I am compassionate. I am loving. I am caring. I am steadfast. I am patient. And God tells Moses, that's my glory as God. So on the cross, Jesus Christ is glorified as the true second Adam who is righteous and who can take your sin upon himself. Still, at the cross, God the Father, because we know in the economy of salvation, God the Father sends the Son, God the Son obeys God the Father, dies for our sins, and that salvation is now impacted in our lives, is brought to fruition by God, the Holy Spirit. So in the economy of salvation, as Christ is on the cross, as he is glorified, as the true Adam, God the Father is glorified in two very important ways. God the Father is glorified as being just. God the Father is glorified as being just. I had someone say, and this has always stuck with me, that every sin that you and I has, have ever committed, any sin that has ever been committed since the beginning of the world will be punished. It will either be punished on the cross or you will bear it in hell for the rest of your existence. So every sin has to be punished because God is a just God. That's why we say the wrath of God was satisfied. So even as Christ is on the cross as the perfect Adam, also God the Father is glorified as the just so that we are supposed to look at the cross and say, God is just. Not only that, God the Father is glorified on the cross as a faithful God who keeps his promises. I always tell people, I always ask wherever I get an opportunity to teach and I ask, what's the story of the Bible? What's the story of the Bible? Why do we show up in church? Why do we go to Bible study? Why do we do all these things? What's the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is the story of a holy God dwelling with a holy people in a holy place through the perfect obedience of a representative. Or what former theologians would say, a federal head. As God's the first Adam, so God those who are in Adam. As God's the second Adam, so God's those who are in the second Adam. And so when God promises in Genesis 3, where we see the seed of the gospel, that one who is better than the first Adam will come so that you and I can be seated here this morning, I'm standing, you can be seated here this morning as those who have been renewed and redeemed by Christ Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God the Father. So on the cross, God the Father is glorified as just and as one 
who keeps his promises. You can trust God. You can trust his word because he keeps his promises. And you can trust in Christ Jesus because in his glorification on the cross, he takes upon our sins. And how do we know that Jesus Christ really took upon our sins? I always tell people that 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And 1 Corinthians points us to the fact that because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, even remember what Jesus does when he's walking with the two, um, I assume they are men, maybe it was a man and his wife, the Bible doesn't tell us, on the road to a mouse, and they are talking, they are like, are you the new guy in Jerusalem? You don't know what has happened. And Jesus Christ tells them, tells all the story and says, oh, you guys do not understand this. Jesus Christ was supposed to die and be raised again. And Jesus Christ says, is raising again is also his glorification. And why is that important? That is important because if Jesus Christ had committed any kind of sin, Jesus Christ had not obeyed Mary and Joseph fully, if Jesus Christ had gossiped against Peter when John was not around, if Jesus had committed any sin, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he would not have been raised from the dead because he had to be fully perfect for him to be raised from the dead. And so the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is his glorification, is also his justification. God the Father is looking at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and saying, I accept that. That's a perfect and a true gift. And Jesus Christ says we have to know that before we can obey the command that he calls us to love one another. So the glorification of Christ Jesus is our hope. We have no other hope as believers. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough money. You can't love enough for God to accept you. Our only hope is that we come and see Christ on the cross. We see him raised again from the grave. We see that all Christ has been glorified. His sacrifice has been accepted by God the Father. And because it has been accepted by God the Father, then I am a child of God and he accepts me and he cares for me. I think I asked this the last time I was preaching and I say, if, if you do something wrong, maybe you speak to your wife in a way that you, you should not have spoken, maybe you cheat in an exam, maybe you do something, maybe, maybe plagiarize just a little bit, and then uh, you say, oh, I'm so sorry before God, and God, would you please forgive me? Why does God forgive you? If you say it's because you are sincere enough, if we were really sincere enough when we ask God for forgiveness, we will never do the same thing again. God always forgives us because of the glorification of Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus is fully righteous. And then God looks at Christ Jesus and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, I will forgive you. And so Jesus Christ says, that's important. That's important for us to be able to know if we are going to love one 
another. And why is that important? Look at what Jesus says in verses 33. He calls them little children, which in Greek is technia, which is only used once in the Gospels, used again by Paul in Galatians, and used again when, 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 when John is writing his epistles. He continues talking about little children, little children. So get the picture when Jesus Christ is talking with his disciples in the fairway discourse. He's calling them little children. I love you. I care for you. My glorification ensures that you are the children of God the Father. So the first thing is that Christ glorification and Christ gift for his disciples. I think sometimes when we think about the church or the community of believers, sometimes it's, all, it's, it's, it's a lot of me, me in it. What, what can the church do for me? What can the church do for my family? And those are good and important questions. But think about what Christ talks about his glorification. Think about what the church is. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, we are the bride of Christ Jesus. So I always tell people, like, if, if, if you die today, you are in the presence of Christ Jesus. You are perfect. You will be perfect in the presence of Christ Jesus. That's what he tells the thief on the cross, that today you will be with me in glory. But there's another beautiful thing that is still missing. You are not yet complete because you are not yet united with your resurrected body. So you can imagine Jesus Christ who goes on the cross. The, the, the letter of Hebrews tells us that he endures the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before Christ Jesus? It was you and me, people who are saved from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And the joy that was set before him is that Christ Jesus is going to be the groom of a bride from every tribe and every nation. So I always tell people, even right now, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, who is fully God, is still expectant. He is expecting the new heavens and the new earth when his bride, those who are dead and those who are alive, will be joined to their resurrected body and he will have the beauty of the church forever and ever. And Jesus Christ tells us that's a gift. It's a gift for you to be able to be seated here this morning. That's how we need to think about the church. That's how we need to think about renewal, that it's a gift from God, that God, uh, Christ has united us to himself, and then Christ has united us to one another. Just, just, just think about this. Those who are united to Christ Jesus should also be united to one another. So we cannot even start to love each other as Christ Jesus commands us, unless we grasp that. Unless we grasp that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is his glorification, and the gift of the church, that, that for you to be saved and be to be blessed in a local church 
is a gift. It's not a right. It's a gift, a beautiful thing, and that all of those who are in a church have been bought by the very blood of Jesus Christ. That should send you to your knees. That should send me to, your, to my knees. The beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the perfect second Adam dying for your sin. And the beauty of him now giving you the gift of salvation and giving you the gift of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to grasp that, Christ says, then now I can give you a command. What are, what are the commands of God for? I, I heard of a pastor who asked uh, during a Sunday school, and he said, uh, what do you do with the commandments of God? And one lady said, I underline them in blue. But the commandments of God are to be obeyed. And Jesus Christ says, I give you a new command. What does that mean? That's tied back to the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because we know that in the Old Testament, Moses is giving commandments. He's saying, you need to care about your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. You need to care about the community that God has placed you in. But Jesus Christ here is saying, this is a new commandment. And that's why I said, we can never even start to obey this commandment. We can never even start to love one another unless we understand what the glorification of Christ Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. And Jesus Christ calls this a new commandment because number one is in, in, initiating a new covenant. The promise in the Old Testament is that God will give you hearts of flesh. And Jesus Christ is saying, this love that you are to have for one another is supposed to come from the heart. It's not just supposed to be external. It's supposed to come from the heart. Christ is supposed to work in our hearts here at renewal so that our love is overflowing for one another. And so Jesus Christ says, this new command I give to you that you love one another. Are we supposed to love one another? Two points that I want to highlight on how we are supposed to love one another. Selling someone that uh, Jesus could have skipped verses 31 and uh, started with verses 34, but he did not because he wanted verses 34 to be anchored in a deep theology of our union with Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says, you love one another, what has just happened in the previous verses? It's like someone who runs a marathon and wins, someone who is not me, runs a marathon and wins, and then uh, once they win, they tell you, be disciplined. It's good for you to be disciplined. You know what they mean? You've seen them. You've seen th their discipline in action. You can be able to emulate that because you see their discipline in action. In the previous verses, before Judas left, what did Jesus Christ do? Jesus Christ washed the feet of the disciples. So when he tells them a new commandment, I give to you, to one another, love one another, they already know what that means. They say, 
Paul. I need to be like Jesus. I need to be a servant, as Paul tells us. Yes, I have my interest. I, I like the way Paul puts it. Let not each one look in, only in, uh, towards his interest, but also towards the interest of others. Because we all have interest. Paul is not going to ignore that. But we don't look only to our own interest. So how do we love one another? We love one another as we serve one another. Jesus Christ has already served the disciples and they have seen him wash their feet. But even the service of Christ Jesus and washing the disciples of, well, the, not washing the disciples, washing the feet of the disciples is pointing them to what he will do on the cross. No love, John tells us, as man than these, that they should lay their life down for one another. So Jesus has served the disciples and he says, you have union with me. I love for you. My love for you will take me to the cross. I care, you, I care for you. I love you. Actually, John starts uh, this chapter in verses one by saying that Jesus had loved them and he had loved them to the end. To the end means that he had shown them all that if you can imagine like an, an infinite God, all that love he had poured to the disciples and then tells them now a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Serve one another. Don't look only to your own needs. I've already washed your feet. Do that for other people. And Jesus tells us, you are to love as I have loved you. We cannot save people. I mean, Jesus Christ dies on the cross, is the perfect savior. But we can have, and mark this, we can have saving love towards people. We can be a people who encourage one another. We can be a people who care for one another. We can be a people who are always and eager to serve one another. And so we can have a kind of a saving love. And so Jesus Christ, when he says you are to love one another, we are to love one another as the example that he has shown us, that we are willing to serve one another, that we are willing to care and even give, our, give of ourselves to others. And it's interesting, what Jesus says in chapter 13, he also repeats in chapter 15. And I want just to, to read uh, chapter 15, verses 12. And he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he tells us how. Greater love has no one than this that somebody laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Are you a friend of Jesus this morning? What's your love life like for the fellow believers, for the fellow children of God? When Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says, you can prophesy, 
You can give your money to the poor. You can give your body, not just to be crucified, but even to be burned. But if you have no love, it's all for nothing. That's radical. I think when Jesus Christ says we are to love one another as he has loved us, I was thinking about this the other day. The writers of Paul and the rest of the epistles, they always tell us, grace and peace be to you, right? You read, you read the epistles of Paul, he either starts by saying that or he either ends by telling people, grace and peace be to you. What does that even mean? When Paul says, grace and peace be to you. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. So when we look at the peace of God that Paul says, peace and grace be to you, God gives us Christ Jesus. Paul could have said, let Christ Jesus be with you and let his peace be upon you. Christ gave himself for the church. And so when Paul says, you can, give, you can do all these things, but if you have no love, it's all for nothing. Paul is saying, for those who have been redeemed, who have been brought to union with Christ Jesus, we just don't do stuff for stuff's sake. We give ourselves to people. We give of ourselves to people. So you can give a million dollars, but if you are not giving of yourself, Paul says, you would rather have given ten dollars, but you have also given of yourself. And so when a community is characterized by a giving love, whereby people are saying, how can I serve you? How can I care for you? How can I know you? How can I be of service to you? Jesus says the world will take notice that you are my disciples. And I think there are two meanings of that. When, Paul, when, when Jesus is saying that people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, number one is that you are going to form a community that is attractive, that cares for people. I read the statistics the other day and they were saying that uh, for most men in America, once you hit 35 years, most men do not have any friends. Once you leave college, you go working, they don't have any friends. They don't have people that they can reach out to and care for one another. But Christ is saying that you will form a community that will be an attractive and beautiful community because it will be pointing people to the love that is found in the triune God. Not only that, if you are not loving one another, then there is no unity in that church. And where there is no unity, there is no desire for people to say, oh, let's go out there and tell our co-workers, our fellow students, what we have. Because there's that aspect that if we are loving one another, if we are caring for the needs of the other people, it's not just about me, then there is unity and there is care for one another. And we, at that particular time, can become people who evangelize and say, come, see what I have. Come see the community that we are building because we are in union with Christ Jesus and we are in union with one another. So the glorification of Christ Jesus 
the gift of Christ Jesus, which is the church, should always be the anchor upon which we stand for us to be able to love one another. So the last point, we, we love in truth, we love in service, and we also love in truth, because there's a lot of talk nowadays about love. What does that even mean? Christ says you love as I have loved you. And so we love other people in truth because we are in union with Christ Jesus. How do you know that you are a loving community? How do you know that you care for one another? I think it's sometimes by how we say goodbyes. So when people in your small group, they are leaving, how do you say goodbyes? Sometimes it shows how we have been loving one another. And I'm saying that because the first time I read this, I was really struck by what Paul does with the elders in Ephesus. So in Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye in verses 18 following to the elders in Ephesus. Paul is telling them, you might never be able to see me again. And if there was any man's man, it was Paul. Paul, before he was a believer, he was persecuting the church. You could say he was an alpha man if there was ever one. After he became a believer, he said, I outworked the rest of the disciples because I did not want the grace of God towards me to be in vain. But what does he do when he meets with the elders in Ephesus that he had spent two years with them when he planted the church in Ephesus, and they are saying goodbye. I'm always struck by what they say. The Bible tells us that they knelt down, prayed, and cried. We formed such a beautiful community whereby we are in union with Christ Jesus, in union with one another, that goodbyes become a hard thing to say. Whereby we don't take people casually. Because people who are at renewal are a gift to us from God. And so Paul says, when he met with the, with, with the elders in Ephesus, uh, Luke tells us that they knelt down and as they were saying goodbye, they cried. That's how much they loved one another. Paul, who had been beaten and in jail, was like, I'm saying goodbye to you guys. You guys have just been a great blessing to my life. And he cries. So the commandment for us to love one another, we cannot obey it unless we are in union with Christ Jesus. And so where do we go from here? John Calvin says that one of the best ways in which you can love your fellow brother and sister in Christ is by praying for them. Commit yourself to prayer. This coming week, know five people from renewal and pray for them throughout the week. Because if we are going to give a love like Christ did, which is us giving each other here, as we serve one another to the glory of God, then we have to be praying for one another so that God is working love in our hearts. 
This is no love that you can just decide, oh, Jesus Christ has said, you must love one another as I have loved one another, and then you go out there and you are burnt out. We love in the Lord. We love in our union with Christ Jesus. And one way we can do that is by starting to pray for one another so that God can be working this love in your heart and in my heart. Five people this coming week, pray with your spouse every day and see what that does to your heart as it's continually transformed into the likeness of Christ Jesus. So we love because Christ is glorified and we are in Christ Jesus. We love because for us to be here this morning and to be members of Renewal Presbyterian Church is a gift from God, the best gift that God can ever give to you. And because of that, we can be able to love truly, we can be able to love with joy, and we can be able to say, I will not look just on my own needs, but I will look unto the needs of my brother. And we can be able to pray for one another, and God works the miracle of love, and we become a community that not only showcases the love of Christ Jesus, but that we are excited to say, if you come there, you are going to be loved on. I usually tell people this, and I'm going to finish with this. Uh, people say, oh, the church is like this, and the church is like that. I've had this conversation with, with, with many students who are maybe leaving the church, or someone who has been in the church, and is leaving the church. And I say, do this. Go find a local church, be known there, spend a year there, and then let's have the conversation. Because sometimes when we accuse the church, we can, we, we can be drawing a straw church, a straw man argument, but you go to a local church where people have been transformed by the power of Christ Jesus. Christ tells us that one mark of that is that we will love one another. That we will look at our lives and say, when I was in hospital, renewal was there for me. When I was struggling with my mental health, renewal was there for me. When I was struggling with my family, renewal was there for me. When we had a stillborn child, renewal was there for me. Why? Because Christ has been there for us. We don't love as a repayment to Christ Jesus. We love because we've been loved and that's the greatest gift that God can give to us. Let's pray.